What do you need? I mean, if I, if I could stand here and I could offer you whatever you need, I could give it to you right now, no public disclosure statement, no, no treat, no. if I could give you something, what do you want? What do you need? There you go. That's the thing, right? Whatever it is, it's usually something that will make you happy, isn't it? That would make you happy, right? There are, um, now, I, I want you to imagine, it's not me that's giving it to you, it is God. What is the thing you really want, you really need right now? If you uh, live in a developing country, it might be, I want food. But again, it's, it's about what would make me happy. Food would make me happy right now. If, you, you know, if you're starving, food would be a good thing. But for us here, it's maybe something else. It may be, I don't know, something that would make us happy. Now, I want to say straight up here, God wants us to be happy. Okay, That's, that, that may come to you as a bit of a shock. You might think, well, then why aren't I happy right now? I'm going to come back to that in a moment. But really, God actually does want us to be happy. The thing is that we tend to like to, to feel that we need the stuff that we think will make us happy, but we actually end up selling ourselves short. And so we want to ask the question, what does God and Jesus have to say about what we need? Now let me explain what I'm going to do today. I'm going to, um, I'm, I'm going to actually, I'm looking around the room, I can see, I don't know all of you here, right? But I'm going to treat this as an evangelistic talk, okay? I'm going to, uh, for the moment, assume that someone here isn't Christian, um, I'm going to talk for about 25 minutes. Then there's going to be a Q&A session. You guys can ask me any question you want. You can ask me the question that you've always wanted to ask. You can ask the question that somebody else asked and you kind of go, never known how to answer that question. Whatever the question is, it's, it, it's, it's on today, okay? So the gloves are off. You can ask any question you want at the end. And I will try and answer it. <laughs> but what we're going to do is I'm going to look through this passage. take about 20, 25 minutes to do that. So it'll be a slightly shorter talk. Coming in, the gospel of... Okay, because you guys... I know you, I'm going to give you a quick quiz. The gospel of... Yeah, okay, thank you, Annie and Audrey. Because uh, the Bible has how many books? That is the 66, clickety-click, 66. Uh, two big sections of the Bible. First section is called the... New, the other section is called the... Hey, there we go, sure. And there are how many biographies of Jesus... Traditionally speaking, there are how many? (laughs) Four, thank you. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. And the oldest, we think the oldest is? Mark. So this is one of the oldest accounts we have of Jesus' life. So far in Mark, just to let you know what we've been through, because uh, this is coming in at chapter 2. Chapter 1, people have been meeting Jesus. We met John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, um, we find out from one of the other Gospels, but we, we, uh, he introduces Jesus to us. So Jesus isn't just walking onto stage, hey, everyone look at me. He kind of gets a bit of an introduction as he walks on stage. Uh, we also find out that he's been going around, he's been healing people, including Peter's mother-in-law. Um, uh, some people have asked whether that was a good thing for Peter. But anyway, he, he uh, healed Peter's mother-in-law. Uh, he's been delivering people of evil spirits. He's been teaching about God in a way that surprises people. And now we come to this episode. We've got some men. Uh, they have a friend who can't walk. And uh, they work out, hey, Jesus is a guy who can heal. Here's a guy who can't walk. Let's put these two things together. Of course, the room is crowded. And so these guys to decide that they're going to renovate uh, whoever's house it is and give him a free sunroof. 
And so they uh, kind of create a hole, drop him down right in front of Jesus. Kind of makes me wonder how the guy who owned the house, how he felt about that, but that's another story. And then you get to Jesus' response in verse 5. Seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, don't you want to kind of take Jesus to one side at this point of time and go, okay, Jesus, let me explain to you. You're a healer. He can't walk. Let's put those two things together and do something really great here, huh? Let's, let's, yeah. But Jesus' response is, your sins are forgiven. Because Jesus is actually trying to focus on what would make him really happy. One, one person tried to put his head in, in what Jesus might have said if he had have had a longer dialogue, and this is what he said. He said, he might have said to, to this guy, my son, you're mistaken if you think that I, you know, your walking is going to make, make you happy. He said, when I heal your body, if that's all that I do, you'll feel, never, you, you'll, feel you'll never be unhappy again. But wait two months, four months, the euphoria won't last because the roots of discontent of the human heart go deep. The point is, he's saying, it'll be really great. This guy will get up. He goes, I can walk. I can dance. I can do whatever I want. I can jump. I can, I can walk over there now. I don't need someone to carry me. This is exciting. But this guy, sort of, his point is, yeah, but in a couple of months' time, you find all of the, the, the negative things of walking, and all of a sudden, you go, I've got to walk everywhere, and I keep stubbing my toe. And have you seen how expensive shoes are these days? And all of a sudden, it's not something that's going to give him complete happiness. Because that's sort of the way we work in terms of happiness. There's a very famous study from, uh, from about 1978, and they've repeated it several times since then. And what they did is they compared three groups of people. There were about 20 in each group. There were about 20 people who won the lottery. And then there were about 20 people who just had a normal life. And then there were about 20 people who had lost a limb, an arm or a leg. And they compared them, and they gave them a study on how happy they were. Now, at the start, lotto winners were... Yeah, boy, they were really, really happy. The normal people were, eh, you know, because <laughs> life goes on. And the people who'd lost a limb were, yeah, really sad, really upset that they'd lost a limb. Now, they then compared them to two years later. The normal people were, yeah. The people who'd lost a limb, happy because they were alive. Well, yeah, they were actually kind of doing okay. They were, they were almost about the same level as the people who are the, the normal people, but they weren't as sad as they were then. The people who won the lottery, what were they? They were devastated, right? Because what they had discovered is you get a whole bunch of money, it destroys your life. And so what they thought was, if that's why they put their lottery ticket in the first place, is they thought, if I get money, I'll be happy. And all of a sudden, I get $11 million and I'm great. Until you realize it destroys your family because you get $11 million, everyone in your family remembers that you owe them money, even if you don't owe them money. Uh, it destroys your family. Uh, a lot of people actually ended up going into bankruptcy after winning the lottery because they, uh, used to, they used to spend a lot of it on things like gambling or frivolous kind of things. They thought, well, we've got bucket loads of money. I can just spend it any way I want. You see, what we think makes us happy doesn't. Uh, there was a lady called Cynthia Hemel who wrote uh, an article in New York Times about how, uh, what, how she felt sorry for actors and celebrities. Uh, because she said, every time they get the next, they, they, all they think is, if I just get the next role, I'll be happy. And, and she says, then they get the next role, and they're really unhappy with it. And so they go, well, if I just get the next one and the next one. And she said, as she wrote about this, she says, I think when God really wants to play a rotten joke on you, he grants you your deepest wish. 
Now, when Jesus says your sins are forgiven, it's not that he doesn't care about the man, it's just that he's saying, I want you to have what you really need, especially what you really need to be happy. And what you really need to be happy is a connection, a relationship, whatever you want to call it, you need to know God. And I want to forgive your sins so that you can know God. But this causes a bigger problem. That's the the paralytic's problem. But what about the scribes? They've got a problem as well. See there, verses 6 and 7? Some of the scribes were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does he speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Um, Just to explain, the scribes are religious experts. uh, And at the end of the last chapter... Jesus has actually given them an invitation to say, hey, you know what, something amazing is going on here. There's a guy who had had a skin disease and he'd been healed. Um, And so uh, in the Old Testament, if you've been healed of a skin disease, you went to the priest and the priest declared you clean. That is acceptable to the rest of society. Now, how many times did that occurred in the Old Testament? Twice. No, that's all right. It happened twice. One, Moses' sister. So we're going back like, you know, 1800 years or whatever it is. Uh, another guy is a guy called Naaman, who's kind of a little obscure in about 800 BC. But it happened twice in the last 2,000 years. And now, again, it's happening here. And so these guys are going, okay, well, who is this guy and what is he doing? And all of a sudden, he sees this man and he forgives them. And they're saying, hey, you can't do that. There is a theological problem here. Let me explain what the theological problem is. I want you to imagine that we're sitting in a law court, okay? Up here is the judge. <coughs> um, that's why the chair is here that I'm about to fall over. Uh, judge is sitting in the chair. Okay, you remember, you know, Judge, you guys, you guys seen Judge Judy? Yeah, okay. And over here is the defendant, right? So he's the guy who uh, everyone, you know, the, the complaint's been made over. And over here is the, yeah, the plaintiff. Is that is it, that's what they call it, isn't it? Civil. Plaintiff, okay, good. Got a legal expert here, so that makes it a bit Right, so here is the thing. Um, the difference, so that's our law court metaphor. The plaintiff has a complaint. He's going, hey, this guy did something wrong. The judge is the one who decides what happens. And this guy over here is trying to go, you know what? No, I didn't do anything wrong. And here's the reason why. In the Bible, there is a difference. In the Bible, there isn't three people in the room. There's only two because God is both the judge and the plaintiff. He is both the one who has been done wrong against and he's also the guy who decides. Now, we don't do that in Australia. We don't do that in the Western world because we don't trust people to have that much power. But God does. And what Jesus is saying is, this guy who, has, who, is, uh, who is human, he's done the wrong thing, he gets to be called acquitted, forgiven. And, and the, the, far, the, the scribes are pointing out, hey, there is a problem here because either the judge does it well, the plaintiff can let drop the case, but, you know, some guy like Paul sitting there watching the whole thing, for him to stand up and go, I think he's acquitted, is like, well, yeah, thanks, Paul, that's really interesting, but that's irrelevant to what's going on here. You see what I mean? The scribes actually have a point. They're going, who can say this? That's why they're calling it blasphemy. They're saying, if you say this, then you are claiming that you are God himself. But... What they have forgotten is that Jesus is God. They have actually kind of said, Jesus offers forgiveness freely. Before I go to the next point, I think we should turn the heaters off because I'm feeling very hot up here. You guys feeling pretty warm and a little hard to concentrate? Let me just...
Yeah, I got some questions. Thanks. How is it that Jesus is able, therefore, to say, you are forgiven? Well, it is because he seems to offer it so freely to this man, doesn't he? And he seems to offer it so freely to us. That's what I'm I'm trying to get to at this point, is to say, Jesus offers forgiveness freely, but it's not free. It's just he gives it freely to us. Forgiveness actually costs a huge amount. In fact, there is no one on this planet, there is no one in this world who has enough money, enough power, enough energy, enough whatever it is that it will take to actually forgive someone. There is no one who can do this. There is only one being in the entire universe who has the power to forgive, and that is God himself. And it is only if God becomes a man and dies and pays the penalty that we owe that we can be forgiven. So when Jesus utters these words, it is an extraordinary claim that he is saying, I am God. Now, Jesus has this great, this has been leading up to this great resolution. Verse 8 to 10, uh, 8 to 11, sorry. Right away, Jesus understood in his spirit that they were reasoning like this within themselves. And he said to them, why are you reasoning these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, pick up your stretcher and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he told the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take up your stretcher and go home. We have all sorts of different things going on here. Jesus saying to the paralytic, paralytic saying, you know what I really need? I really need to walk. Jesus going, no, actually what you really need, you really need God. And then the scribes saying, hey, you can't do that. Now, the first thing is that to the scribes, you don't believe that I'm God? Now, I can say to you, your sins are forgiven. But they're just words. In our law court metaphor, it's like Paul standing up and saying, I acquit this man of his crimes. Go, great, that's interesting, but you have no power to do this. And so is it a fake no, no, no. Jesus then turns around to prove that his sins are forgiven, to prove these aren't just words. What does he do? He says, get up, take up your mat and walk. Now, you heal a paralytic by just speaking. There is power there. I am able to forgive sins. Now, the choice is either Jesus is able to forgive sins or he is not, which means either he is God or he is not. That's, that's what you've got to work out from this passage. And so to the scribes, he, he resolves the scribes' problem. They're going, well, you can't, you can't just say that. That's, that's not in your place to say. He goes, let me show you that I have the power to do this. The irony is that as he says this, this will lead to a chain of reaction, a chain reaction that will lead to the scribes actually saying, this man must die. And the irony is that they will try and kill him because they think he is doing the wrong thing by God. And yet this is part of God's, Jesus' plan. I think this is the reason why Jesus has invited them onto the scene. This is the reason why Jesus is sort of saying, hey, I want you to show, I want to show you this. And they go, no. And then he ends ends up at the cross. They think it is because he is blaspheming. He is doing it because that was the price that was paid for us. 
the cross. So that I can say to you, your sins are forgiven and they are not just words, not because I speak them, but because I can look back at the historical event of the cross and I can say, I know your, your sins have been paid for at the cross. You can be forgiven. The wonderful irony that's going on there. But back to the paralytic. He goes to the paralytic, he says, your sins are forgiven. Paralytic says, I really want to walk. Jesus says, I'll give you both. You can get up, you can walk. The guy walks out of there. It's amazing. You know, people kind of go, wow, that is incredible. And I think that's why we know that it's not a fake. This is done in a small town of Capernaum. Everybody knows everybody. My guess is at least some people knew, knew him there. And, and some people would have gone, if he was just faking, okay, hey man, that guy can walk. I, I did a marathon with him like last week. You know, this, this is just all fake or anything. But no one does this. What, is, what people's reaction is, they all, uh, in verse 12, immediately he got up, picked up his stretcher in front of everyone, and as a result, it was a stand and gave great glory to God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. No, this is, this is new, this is weird, this is out there. He says, you can get up and you can walk. But in four months' time, you might be stubbing your toe and complaining about this or that, or complaining about the fact you've got to walk everywhere because you haven't got a car, because cars haven't been invented for another 2,000 years, and... You're going to be complaining about stuff, but you walk. But more importantly, I'm I'm going to forgive your sins so that you might know God. See, what do you really need? When I asked you that at the start of the talk, what you don't have to tell me what it is, but let me ask you, have you stopped to think, if you got that, would it really be lasting happiness for you? What would happen if you really did got that? And what if what you really need is God? What if what you really need is forgiveness? There's a couple of different ways that you can find out a bit more about what to do next. Um, On on our feedback form, you'll notice there's a few more um, little boxes that you can tick. Uh, One of them is you might want to... uh, We're hoping to run the Jesus and You course... Uh, which most of you will know, uh, are familiar with. We're going to run that a little bit later on. And if you want to come along to that, see that again, that'd be a great thing. Or you might have some questions you might want to find out. Or you might want to actually say, you know what? I do need to trust God. I need to respond to this offer of forgiveness and accept it. And a good first step, and I want you to hear that first step in that, is a prayer here. And I'm going to pray that. But when you, as you do this, it's about trusting in God, turning to God, meeting with His people, joining His people. That's part of what it means to be God's person. But if you want to take this first step, let me pray this. And you might want to pray it silently to yourself. Well, actually, you're praying it silently, but you're saying, praying it silently to God. Dear God, I know that I am not worthy to be accepted by you, I don't deserve your gift of eternal life. I'm guilty of rebelling against you and ignoring you. I need forgiveness. Thank you for sending your son to die for me that I might be forgiven. Thank you that he rose from the dead to give me new life. Please forgive me and change me that I might live with Jesus as my ruler. Amen.